Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, I'm talking to Ed Miliband, and we're discussing how political change really happens. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, a literary magazine full of politics, and a political magazine full of literature. Listeners can subscribe at a special rate of just £1 an issue by using the URL lrb.me talk. That's lrb.me talk. I recorded this conversation with Ed Miliband at the end of last week. He is in his Doncaster constituency as we're speaking. I'm in Cambridge. We're talking about, but not only about, his new book, which is called Go Big, How to Fix Our World. It comes out of his podcast, Reasons to be Cheerful, a podcast that I've been on, and he and Jeff Lloyd, his co-host, have been on Talking Politics too. They canvass the big ideas that they think could make the world a better place, give us reasons to be cheerful. This book tries to distill them and turn them into not a programme, but an argument for change. And that's where we start. Ed, this book is about big ideas and it's about all the ways we could do politics differently. But towards the end, you say, and I hope I get this right, you say not just one of the conclusions, but the the big conclusion you want people to take away is that politics is too important to be left up to the politicians. And I wonder how you feel about that. So you, you're writing this partly as a sort of podcaster ideas person, but you're also a professional politician. Yeah. So how do you feel as a professional politician? Does it make you feel that your job radically needs to change? Should you be giving power away? Should you be persuading your colleagues to be giving power away? How do you feel about that, given you're on the other side of that line and I'm not? I mean, I'm sure we should be doing that. I suppose the primary sense in which I mean this is that, and I've always been convinced about this, you know, including when I was leader of the Labour Party, and you know this much better than me, if you think about all of the great changes that have happened in our society... They didn't happen simply because nice politicians made them happen. You know, if I think about the transformation in LGBT rights during my lifetime, that didn't happen because Tony Blair was elected in 1997. Yes, what Tony Blair's government did was important, but it was a movement of people who in the 1980s said this isn't good enough. We're not willing to put up with being unequal citizens. It was in the wake of Section 28. And that's true of changes throughout our history. And that may sound a bit sort of... I hope it doesn't sound too banal, but I think it is really important because because I think it then goes to a wider issue, which is, you know, Mark said, men make their own history, but not in circumstances of their own choosing. And, you know, it is the circumstances, it is the movements that can exact can act change. And so that's the primary way in which I mean it. And then there's a second way in which I mean it, which is which is also very important to me, which is however bleak or difficult things might look with a national government, there are points of entry. There are points of pressure. There are things that can be pushed to create change. And I go through in the second, in the last part of the book, you know, the fight for the $15 minimum wage, which has been an extraordinary movement in the US, what Preston Council is doing to pay the living wage to people it employs and people it buys services from, the divestment movement, the fossil fuel movement, and right down to community organising. I did a community organising course after I lost the general election, and perhaps we'll talk about that. And, you know, this story sticks in my head of these Somali young people in Cardiff who felt completely excluded and marginalised, and they wanted a halal Nando's, and they fought for it and won. So 
it's movements, it's people that create change in the end. Of course, politicians matter. And secondly, there are these points of entry always where change can be enacted. So when I read that, and I'm not a politician, in a way I do politics for a living, but not in the way that you do. And you know, a professional politician, it's called a living for a reason. It's hard work, right? And it's, it's time consuming. And politics is hard work. It has its ups and downs, or in my case, lots, lots of downs. Yeah. It has its ups and downs. <laughs> One of the feelings I had, so your book, if I'm getting this wrong, tell me, but your book feels like a show-don't-tell book. You tell lots of stories that show how change is possible. You know, it, it happened. Or to use another cliche, it's a kind of, if you build it, they will come set of stories. That change can happen, it's small, it's incremental, but you show across a whole range of areas, local, national, international. So the what of your story is very much show you could do this, you could do this, you could do this. But the how is tell in the sense that your book is also full of sort of injunctions to people to get involved. I mean, you're telling people that it depends on them and you know, we, us non-politicians, have to do it. And politics is hard work. And some of these stories are inspiring, but some of them are kind of exhausting. If you, you know, <laughs> These campaigns are incredibly hard. And it is one of the truisms of the history of politics. It's true that change comes from people, but most people don't want to do it. And that feels to me like a slight tension. Maybe I'm overstating this, but the examples of change are inspiring. But the work involved, it's not easy. And you you are constantly encouraging people in this book to do more. And I think a lot of people are going to feel, actually, I'd rather leave it to the politician. Well, that's interesting that that's your take out from it. Um, it's not my only take out. It's just one. No, no, no. And I'm not saying it's and I, I'm not saying in any sense that you're wrong. I suppose what I'm trying to do is both say... The, the thesis of the book is we need big change. We've been through the financial crisis, Brexit, what coronavirus has demonstrated about the injustices of our country. We've got the climate crisis. We're in the decisive decade. We can't look at this set of circumstances and think what we need is a bit of a nudge on the tiller. And so, so it's setting up the idea of the need for big change. It's trying to show that there are solutions out there. People, lots of people will think, well, yeah, you know, maybe housing is a problem, but is there a solution? Well, yes, if you look at what Vienna has done in terms of social housing, there is a solution. We've still got massive gender inequality. Are there solutions? Yes, there are, if you look at the Nordic countries and what they're doing. Are there different ways in which the relationship between business, workers and government can be arranged? Yes, there are. Look at most of the other countries of Europe. So I think I'm trying to say that there, then there are things to excite you, things to make you think, you know, things can be different. And then I suppose I am saying we've all got a responsibility to do it. And maybe and maybe that is a bit tiring. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to abdicate the responsibility of politicians, but I didn't set out to write, and you may want to come on to this, I didn't set out to write a book of political strategy because it is partly based on the podcast, this book, in the sense that the podcast's idea was to present big ideas that can make the world better. And I thought, well, actually, there's a big thirst for knowing what those ideas are. But but I don't disagree that it is hard and exacting mm. and it involves defeat. I mean, look, I know I'm a good example of that. But I think you'll know the history of this better than me. But the I think the minority report on the poor laws had the foreshadowing of the NHS. And that was sort of 1909, I think, you know, and it came to being in 1948. Change can take a long time. And that isn't to say that we should wait 40 years to make lots of the big changes that are necessary. But it needs to be kept alive. And, and as Milton Friedman said, you know, it's when the crisis hits, the ideas that are lying around tend to get picked up. So, so ideas really matter. Mm. 
And as you say, as you just described it there, part of what the book is doing, it is just saying, look. So one of the examples I really was struck by, and it, and it gets in a way to this puzzle about how change happens, is, and you mentioned it earlier, Preston. So Preston, ordinary town, and is he called Matthew Brown? Matthew Brown, yeah. Yeah, nice ordinary name. <laughs> Don't know anything about him. Uh, you know, it sounds like sort of every man, long-serving council member, who suddenly thinks we can do this differently. And you can sort of read that story in two ways, one of which is sort of, well, you know, anyone can do this, any town can do this. This is an example that could be re- repeated anywhere. And then you also read it and you think, this sounds like a completely extraordinary person. He saw something that almost no one else saw. And in these stories of social movements, there is always that tension between, is this a story of sort of ordinary people just seizing their moment? Or is there something remarkable about the coming together often of individuals? There's a sort of serendipity about it. Is Preston a sort of serendipitous story? Or is it, could everywhere be Preston, do you think? Does everywhere need a Matthew Brown? And where do you find them? I think the Matthew Browns are there. There are lots of them. And maybe part of it is about knowing what can be done. I think there are people searching for better solutions. And, you know, yes, he's a particularly creative person, but I think maybe one of the ways the book might help is bring together examples, showing what is possible. But also, I suppose, the other thing that strikes me, I'd mentioned earlier that I went on this community organising course. I'd lost the general election of 2015, as you all know, and your listeners will know. It's not great losing a general election. And I was wondering how to sort of rebuild. And a friend of mine suggested I go on this Citizens UK, which is a big responsibility for the living wage movement in the UK, a sort of community organising organisation. And I went on their five-day training in uh, 2015. And and one of the things that struck me, and this goes back to Saul Alinsky and Rules for Radicals, it, you know, there's a, there's a whole method to, to organising people, to grassroots movements. And one thing that is really interesting is when you look at some of the successful social movements that there've been, like the living wage movement in the US, for example, the Fight for 15, it wasn't just let's go on and have a demonstration. There was a couple of hundred fast food workers in New York who first came out to Fight for 15, who said 725 is, is not enough to live on, not enough to survive, as their slogan went. You know, they were organised. It was, it was organised. There was a method to this. So I think, look, part of it is hopefully giving examples. But I think the other thing that that course showed me and the Nando's example and so many countless other examples I could give you about the community organising movement is ordinary people have, can do extraordinary things. And it is partly about mobilising, inspiring, showing what is possible. So why do you think the Preston story hasn't been replicated? In a way, it sort of sounds win-win. When you read these things, you think, well, yeah. I mean, now someone has shown that you can do so in Preston. It's about reviving the local economy, keeping more of the resources of the economy in the local area, driving change through the powers that the council has. People who said it couldn't be done and it could be done. So why, once someone has shown how to do it, don't more people do it? Is it inertia? Is it because they don't know about it? Is it because actually some of this is a bit zero-sum and not everywhere can be Preston? I mean, we should say what that's one of the, just to give the core yeah. of Preston to people. I mean, it's basically bringing together so-called anchor institutions, which is public sector institutions, the council, the NHS, the police, others, to say we're not just going to, I mean, the core of it is we're not just going to buy from the lowest bidder. We're going to make sure we pay the living wage. We're going to encourage local businesses. We're going to keep more of the money in Preston. It's a really interesting question. I think inertia is probably part of it. I think there's, 
we haven't done it this way before. I mean, after all, you know, it took Matthew Brown and the organization Claire's to come together and see and learn from Cleveland, Ohio, actually, and think this mm. was a way of doing things. It's hard. You know, I've been talking on my podcast to people who are trying to kind of go one step further, set up community banks, if you like, public banks, which I think Matthew is interested in in Preston to serve the local businesses and local community. And it's incredibly hard. You've got to jump through a very, very large number of obstacles. But I think the other thing to say is I'm not saying in the book that Preston on its own or even lots of Prestons can do it. I mean, one of the things I try and confront at the end of that chapter is to say, are we going to have a sort of egalitarian Preston in a sea of inequality? And is that really going to, you know, is Preston going to be able to do it on its own? And I think Matthew would say, well, it can make a difference. He can make a difference, but it's very, very hard if you don't have a central government that's sympathetic and others that are sympathetic. I suppose here's the other point I would just make, which maybe just segues a little bit from from this, which is, I do think there is something about interesting about the sort of how the terrain of politics has changed since I was leader. When I was opposing Cameron, he wouldn't be saying, I share your worries about the deep inequalities we face as a society and we've got to do something about them. He basically tried to sort of more or less, I don't want to caricature him, but he didn't sort of recognise that description of the country. I do think one of the challenges the left faces, we may come on to this, is that we're facing a very different form of conservatism, which wants to acknowledge those challenges and then say that they've got the solutions to them. Now, I mentioned that in the context of Preston because... I think that there are chances for councils like Preston to push government and say, well, you say you care about these things. Well, help us to go further. And so examples like that, they have started to shift some of the national conversation, I would say. So I was going to ask you this later, but I'm going to ask it to you now because it comes out of what you just said. Do you think the Conservative Party is actually better at the politics of change than the Labour Party? Because... And particularly our experience of recent Well, they've been years. better in the last decade. But actually, also historically. I mean, it's, you know, it's one of the great sort of facts slash mysteries of British politics that the Conservative Party keeps winning, keeps adapting, keeps changing. And it's ironic if it's true, but there seems to be a, potentially at least, an openness to responding to change, which the Labour Party, for whatever reason, finds hard. I mean, that's really interesting and probably true, I mean, the obvious example is after 1945, I think it was Rab Butler, wasn't it, who shifted the whole nature of the sort of Conservative Party, recognising that there was a new settlement and to respond to the Labour government. And after all, they were back in power within six years. And then I think, you know, in this more contemporary phase, I do think something significant is is happening, which is that you had, if you like, a, a centre-left, centre-right right settlement that was repudiated by the financial crisis. And the, the opponent that I face in Cameron is very different, as I said, from, from what Johnson is offering. And, and in a way, the Brexit referendum is then the obvious pivot for that, because Cameron and Osborne were saying in that referendum, vote remain because things are good. And people said, well, enough people said, well, no, they aren't. And Johnson, May and Johnson are both trying to sort of fashion that new settlement. And in a sense, where I think the battleground of politics is, is what does the new settlement look like? I think that's actually where the battleground is going to be in the in the years ahead. But to, to sort of come back to your question, look, maybe the answer is yes. I mean, maybe that is one of the reasons why the Tories have done significantly so much better than us electorally. And then cutting across this is the pandemic. So your your podcast, I suppose, like this podcast started before the pandemic. 
continue through the pandemic, but the pandemic changes so much of the dynamics of both what change is possible, but also it reinforces the message that, yes, quite a lot of political change is engineered, either by politicians or by social movements, and quite a lot of political change is sort of advertent, but a lot of it is inadvertent. And a lot of the most significant changes come out of the unintended consequences of events that no one controlled or could foresee. And the pandemic is presumably an example of that. Lots of the things that have happened during the pandemic and have been much discussed are things in a way we would want to do, changing in some aspects of working, some of the support that the government has offered, you know, the furlough scheme, hard to imagine under any other circumstances, changes in the way that people move around. There was a period where we were living in a much cleaner environments with much cleaner air. How do you hold on to the change you, under these kind of conditions, the change you want, you know, when it's sort of thrown at you and go back with the bits that you don't want? It's it's a big part of the challenge for the kind of story you're telling in this book, I think, which is to, you, know, you have to seize your moment, but the pandemic really poses a challenge about how to sort of carve out the bits that we wish we had done anyway without embracing the whole package because we don't want to live pandemic lives. I think it turns out to be really hard, actually. Um, somebody says it's like it's trying to sort of fix the bike while riding it. And I think, yeah. let's be frank, people, and I include myself in this, are desperate to get back to normal. So I think for my side of politics or any side of politics, I think it's about telling a story about what have we learned during the pandemic. Yeah. Now, I think we've learned incredible things about the spirit of people coming together, mutual aid, all of those things, key workers. I think that is a spirit of solidarity. I think there's interesting opinion polling done by the organisation More in Common saying people perceive Britain much more as a country where we look after each other rather than just looking after ourselves. This was during the course of the pandemic. And I think somehow we have to channel that spirit into the future and then say, well, look at the institutions that we have, whether it's our public services and what the levels of investment they have or the pay of key workers or people's power and ability to have a voice at work or confronting the climate crisis and say, well, do these institutions and the way we run the country match that spirit? And we've got to learn from what we've been through. And I suggest that they they don't and that the rebuilding is based on, on that disconnect, is based on mending that disconnect between the best of us, which we've seen during this awful, awful time, and the way we, the country is run. And, you know, I, I think despite wanting to get back to normal, I think people are up for that. And I think partly people are up for that because they were up for it before. I just I just make this point because I think it's important on the Brexit thing because it, my book was started in the wake of Brexit, but then, you know, it has been published in the wake of, or it, it's still in the middle of the pandemic. You know, I represent a constituency, in fact, I'm speaking to you from a constituency that voted massively for, for leave, one of the biggest leave votes in the in the country. And I want to sort of emphasise this point, you know, people ask, was it about immigration or Europe? And of course, those were issues. But fundamentally, it was, I want a new beginning. I want something different. I want something better. And I think that is the fundamental thirst that exists in the country. And, and you know, I think it's that view that politics is going to have to respond to one way or the other. When you describe it as a disconnect between the institutions and what we've learned about people and how we live, I mean, you could say it's between the institutions and society. And at various points in the book, you talk about it's up to society to decide what settlement it wants, what arrangement it wants, how are we going to deal with social care, whatever. And society, it's a bit like England. England doesn't have the institutions under the devolved settlement. Society doesn't have institutions that represent it in that sense. 
Um, so there's the possibility that we express ourselves through social movements, through campaigns, through organisations at the community level. But a part of your book is about this, but we also need democratic institutions that give voice to people who feel voiceless. You know, it can't just be up to people to sort of do it themselves. We need structures of representation to allow the things that we've learned in the pandemic that are good to have weight and carry through. But what are those institutions? Is it just, are we just talking about sort of deliberative democracy? And I mean, I don't want to sound tired about that. There's lots of excitement around that. But it still seems to me like the thing that's often missing. What are the institutions that can balance the institutions that people feel aren't speaking for them? Well, look, part of it has got to be about a renewal of our democracy. I'm for votes at 16. I know that doesn't, that's not the full runciman, but, um, and you may want to come no, on. We can to... talk about that. <laughs> that seems too timid to me. Um, indeed, uh, it's not going big enough. Yeah, um, or, or small uh, enough. <laughs> well, yeah, or small enough, touche. So there's, um, there's that. I think we remain, England remains probably the most centralised nation in Europe. It is about proper devolution, which isn't just piecemeal and properly embracing that. I was talking to Andy Burnham recently. Yes, he's trying to re-regulate the buses, but if he wants to run his own bus services, he can't by law. And that's just one small example of the way in which Westminster still controls so much. I do think that actually the Citizens' Assembly idea is an exciting idea. I talk about it in the book in, in terms of Ireland and Mongolia and goodness knows where, and, and it's being practised around the country in the UK. And I think it's important for the people who attend, but I think it's important because it says something about whether you want to let go or not and whether you're whether you want to let people in to the political process. I think the workplace is important. I think voice at the workplace. So so I think wherever we look in our society, we should be looking at ways in which we can give voice to people. But I suppose the other thing is your question, I think, was about how we enact change and the institutions that we have. I do also think it's about politics telling this story because I think people will respond to a story about the kind of story I was trying to tell just earlier about about the future and, and what we need to build. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Democracies do seem to have a problem with institutional inertia. If you look at the history of democratic politics, it's often a story of slow burn change and sometimes dramatic change, really remarkable responsiveness in crises. Democracies, I think, are good at that. But institutional change is the hardest thing of all. And I've always assumed it's partly a straightforward problem that under democratic systems, the people who win aren't really incentivized to change the system and the people who lose who are incentivized to change the system don't have the power to do so. But you're finding the moment for, for instance, to rethink as and, and when we get to the next Scottish referendum, the constitutional settlement. How do we do it? How do we carve out the space within a democratic politics which is so relentless, 
So all-consuming for the politicians operates to particular timeframes. How do we carve out the space for the necessary institutional change? Because we have, frankly, been stuck with these institutions for a long, long time. And, and Brexit hasn't actually changed that. I mean, it's always struck me as one of the oddities about the case for Brexit, which is to sort of take back control, but not to rethink what it would mean to have control within our national borders so that people felt empowered. Where is that space coming from? I mean, it's a, it's a good question. So Gordon Brown is doing this commission for the Labour Party on these, on these issues. Mm. I mean, I am struck that what produced the Scottish Parliament was a constitutional convention in the 1990s. And, I mean, we're going to need some way of having a kind of conversation across the country about how do people want to be governed. And let's be frank about this, that can sound very boring. Mm. I mean, it goes back to your thing earlier. If it's which set of politicians do you want to have power, I mean, that is really nerdsville. I mean, for most people, they don't, they're not going to be that engaged in it. Yet, as I try and say in the book, I think if it's about whether we have decent bus services in Doncaster, I tell you, people will, be, will care about that. I mean, they really do, because we don't. Mm. And this is always going to be a conversation among a certain group of people. And one of the things, puzzles I've had, I had this question recently, actually, at a book event I did, which is, you know, the case for a written constitution. I'm rather in favour of a written constitution. Parties only, uh, countries, I beg your pardon, only tend to do it after an absolute convulsion. Now, you might have thought Brexit would be the convulsion, but for a whole range of reasons, it hasn't come to the fore. But but I think what you're driving at is you've got to find a way of addressing the problems with our democracy to address these big economic and social questions. And I agree with that. And I think, for my part, I would say Labour should embrace that, whether that's House of Lords reform, electoral reform, other things. I think we should be up for that. Now, you're right, to do it, you'd have to get into power. And I'm not sure how much it propels you into power. I'm slightly sceptical about that, but I think it's certainly the right thing to do. Because in a way, the challenge is to, just as you described it, to make people, ordinary voters, non-politicians, believe that changing institutions matters. And it does connect to the Brexit story. So I'm always slightly haunted by the fact that the referendum on a devolved Northern Assembly from, was it 2004, 2005? Yeah, sometime The one where Dominic Cummings cut his teeth almost as a teenager. And he sort of tested out his slogans because that's how he believes you do politics. And the slogan that bit was the one that said, if you want more politics and more politicians in your lives, vote for this. And that slogan was enough to turn a strong lead for it into an overriding defeat. And that's the challenge, to sort of persuade people that these kinds of changes, which both sound boring, but also sound like more politics, are actually about delivering the bus services that they want. And I don't think anyone has crack that. I mean, it's, I mean, maybe it's the hardest challenge of all, but it really matters because otherwise change will be piecemeal and vulnerable to national governments ignoring it. I mean, mind you, the the Andy Burnham experience, the Sadiq Khan experience in London, mm. you know, and before him Johnson and before him Livingston, you know, I think, I think there are increasing examples around the country where you can, which you can point to, where actually people sort of see the case for change. Actually, interestingly, in in Doncaster, we have a South Yorkshire metro mayor, but the people strongly felt we needed a Yorkshire mayor, which the government didn't want to do for various political reasons. So, look, I'm not saying that this is going to be always the thing that motivates people, because actually, I think the thing that is going to motivate people is economic and social change. I think that's what the country's crying out for. But I think it's less of an uphill struggle, providing it's done in the right way, than it was when uh, Cummings was doing that. 
not saying we have a sort of Northeast Assembly, but you know, the, the general point. I suppose the other thing is about this, people feel so detached from decisions. I mean, people feel so detached from the decisions that affect their lives. That's why take back control was so, was so powerful in my view. Mm. And so I think if it is about returning control to people, I think it maybe can have more, more bite and more popularity. Do you buy the argument, Rahm Emanuel made it, he wrote a book called something like Why Mayors Rule the World or Will Rule the World, which is that city politics is actually by far the most dynamic current form of democratic politics, partly because it's more responsive, it's more immediate. He has a whole line in that, having been mayor of Chicago, when you're mayor, you can't run away from the problems because they're there in your face. You almost have to live in the place that you're governing. You have much more direct contact with the people about whose lives you're taking decisions. And that therefore, if mayors can come together, and it could be internationally, but it could be nationally, like you say, Sadiq Khan and Andy Burnham, and it could cross party lines too, perhaps, perhaps not. Do you buy that at all? Do you think there's a sort of version of politics which almost, almost bypasses the national level to kind of create dynamism across these, these mayoral forms of politics? I think yes, but. I think yes, mm. what mayors are doing in different places is impressive and inspiring and shows that change is possible. I think the but is twofold. One is because we're such a centralised country, I think lots of local leaders spend their time gnashing their teeth about the things they can't do on everything from sort of regulating private landlords to building homes to tackling climate change and so on. And crucial, and that's, this is the second point, crucial to that is the question of resources. I mean, when you are losing, as I think Doncaster has, its central government grants been cut by 50% over the last decade, and you've got very limited tax raising powers and not necessarily a tax base is going to certainly not enable you to, to make up for that. I mean, look, it might be a bit simplistic, but national government still matters hugely. Partly the constraints that mayors face on everything from regulating private housing, private landlords, to building homes, to tackling climate change, and also then crucially on resources. You know, here in Doncaster, we've lost, I think, 50% of the government grant in the last decade. And not only do they not have the tax raising powers to make up for that, but you don't have the, the tax base to do so. So if you want to enact the kind of scale of change that I think is necessary, your national government is absolutely crucial to it. And of course, it's also true that the assumption is that mayoral politics must be a dry run for the successful ones to return to the national stage. Andy Burnham has been sort of afflicted with this ever since his recent resounding thumping win, that it must be therefore a sign that he's wanted to move back to Westminster. And he gave an answer which I thought was sort of fairly convincing, that actually he was being refreshed by the opportunity to do politics in a different way and that Westminster politics didn't have a pull for him, but it was only half convincing. I was very interested because Andy talked to me before he went off to be mayor of Greater Manchester. And, uh, you know, I said to him at the time, are you sure you're going to have the powers to actually make a difference? Or are you going to find that your hands are so tied that you just, you're doing some coordination, but you're not really making a difference? And, and he was right and I was wrong to be sceptical. But let's be frank about this, opposition is pretty depressing. And Andy's not in opposition. He's, he's in opposition to the national government on a lot of issues, but he's actually doing stuff. Mm. He's doing stuff in government. So I think that's right. And I, actually, we talked to him on the podcast a couple of weeks ago and, uh, you know, hearing what he's doing in terms of, for example, bus services, homelessness and various other issues. And uh, 
he's definitely making a difference. But I think national government still matters hugely, obviously. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a couple more questions about specific things in the book. So we've talked fairly broadly about the theme of power and how to affect change. So one, and again, it's a question I know that for many people, it's sort of, it's depressing to hear the politics of this because it's frustrating, but it also, there's something about it which is a bit of a turnoff to be told constantly that this is one of the huge challenges, but social care is one of the huge challenges and that's been brought home by the pandemic, apart from anything else. And you make the point in the book, and I think it's a really interesting thing to think about because it sort of opens up counterfactuals. One of the challenges we face in the UK is that social care was not built into the National Health Service. And had it been, I don't know how possible that was, but had it been, it would be a very different story. The National Health Service has sort of almost taken over the space of the things that we valorise and value. And you know, as a nation, we're committed to it. And we just don't seem to be able to translate that across to social care. And one of the things that shows is just how much historical contingency matters. You know, in different countries, as you describe different successful experiments, there is that feeling that there's a sort of path that countries get set on that makes some things possible and some things not. So you could say, well, what if we treated social care in the way that we treat the NHS? And yet, because of how it was set up, we can't. So how do we bridge that gap? I mean, there are practical things that you talk about in the book, but almost that sort of psychological gap to treat social care in the way that we think about central health provision. Is it bridgeable, that gap? I mean, in, in common with, I should say to your readers, you know, I obviously want them to buy, your listeners, I'm sorry, that you have I obviously readers. want them to buy the book. But in, in common with most politicians, I don't actually have a, I don't present my solution to social care. No. But, but no, but it's I think... It's a problem of the mind in part, though, if you know what I mean. It sounds a bit pretentious, but... No, no, but, but I, think, I think it's a really important question. I mean, I think my answer is this, because in a way, I, I wasn't going to get into the specifics of this system or that system. Partly political bravery. I mean, it's interesting, you know, when I was doing the... We did a review when I was in the Treasury working for Gordon Brown, the Wanless Review, which looked at refinancing the National Health Service. And there was a moment towards the end of the Wanless Review, I think actually we looked at the idea of raising national insurance by more to fund social care too. But I think free personal care had started to happen in Scotland is my memory of it. And it is going to take a party with political bravery. And and in a way, the point the, the book is trying to make on this is whether it's social care or universal childcare, this is about our values as a society and what do we really care about? You know, do we care about the way our old people, our elderly are treated, looked after? Do we think that the best investment we can make in the future, I do, is in universal childcare? If we do, we're going to have to find a way of funding it and politicians are going to have to be brave enough to say that. And I think that goes to the wider thing I'm trying to do in the book, which is to say, look, agree with some of these ideas or disagree with them, whether it's a universal basic income or universal childcare or, you know, building millions of social homes. But when I look at the past, and I know one can have a rose-tinted view of the past, politicians of the past were brave enough to think they could think big and they could persuade the public of big change. Now, to be fair, Brexit is big change. But if it's true, if my thesis is right, that the moment demands big change, we're going to have to have the bravery to, to confront some of these questions, not all of them all at once, but some of them. Of course, it doesn't help that a recent experience of a politician, you know, I think she thought, Theresa May, that she was trying to be a bit brave on social care and she got burned. And there is always that sort of problem that <laughs> some acts of courage don't work. And that does breed a certain sort of reluctance to try again. I mean, obviously her solution wasn't the solution, but nonetheless, there's a kind of 
there's a wariness, I think, around the volatility of the electorate and the possibility that acts of bravery could be the thing that scupper you. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know, because just going back to this oneless thing, Gordon Brown was actually one of the few politicians at that time on the centre-left who actually went out there, I mean, Gordon Brown and Tony Blair, to say, let's raise taxes for this purpose. And I was very struck by that experience of Gordon because it was in his mind that you needed to find a way, as he put it, of refinancing the NHS from quite early on. But it was done in a very methodical way, which is getting this review done, looking at the needs. Now, of course, in social care, it's slightly different because we've had countless reviews and we all know about the need. I do think, by the way, without fetishizing citizens' juries, that engaging the public in this is worth doing because I think the public actually will be more honest about the trade-offs than, than maybe politicians feel they can be at the moment. I think if you confront the public with the trade-offs on this, I think you might get more interesting answers about what people are willing to do, whether people are willing to pay more for it. Last question, so we touched on this. I'm not going to ask you about votes for six-year-olds, or I might, but there's a wider issue here, and it relates to social care too. One of the reasons that change is hard, and this is not, I'm not making a point about sort of how older people think relative to younger people, but we do live in, in the West, particularly in Europe, in democracies which are demographically skewed. And so electoral outcomes are very shaped by generational divides. And I'm sure you've seen the maps of you know, recent British general elections. If the under-40s were the franchise, Jeremy Corbyn would be prime minister with a thumping majority. And if the over-60s were the franchise, Labour wouldn't win any seats at all, barely, maybe five or something. It's a huge divide. And it seems to me that it's skewed in the sense that it's not the case that everyone can vote. It starts at 18. And in a society where people live longer and longer and generational divides seem to shape politics... We have a politics which is geared towards older voters. And Votes for 16 doesn't seem to me enough to address that. Um. <laughs> and I think, um, you know, it's not a problem in the sense that I think that the views of older voters aren't just as important as everyone else's. It's just, it's a direction of travel which seems at the moment to entrench certain things and block off certain kinds of change. Yeah, and, it's, and it is quite dramatic the change in the, in the kind of intention of older voters, as you point out, is very significant. Or the, sorry, the skewing is very significant. And it's also the change has been very dramatic. It's happened relatively quickly, I think, over the last 15, 20 years that this has really bitten. Um, and just to say, it is also partly to do not just with demography, but also movement. You know, as younger people have moved to university towns and so on, the age profile in the so-called red-blue wall seats has really shifted in the last 20 years, including presumably in Doncaster. I suppose if I had a, you know, this is not meant to be flippant, if I had a solution to that, I would be Prime Minister. But I'd say a couple of things that I think I did this, was part of this report that we did into the 2019 and previous election defeats Labour Together report. And I suppose the conclusion we reached was that I think there is a constituency to be built for the kind of economic, some of the kind of economic change that I'm talking about in this book, that that is a way of uniting so-called red wall voters, more city-based voters, older and younger voters too. And I listened to your podcast last week about the problems of the centre-left, the problems of of centre-left parties around the world, but also the, the Labour Party in the UK. And, you know, I do tend to think that the best solution for progressive parties, also what I think is the solution for the country, which is this kind of economic argument. And I certainly see that here in 
in Doncaster. The contrast I would draw is the 2017 and 2019 general election. There were lots of reasons we lost so badly in 2019, but one of them was definitely, and this is a very sort of obvious point, was the opening up of the reopening of Brexit, where 2017 it had been seen to have been put to bed, and or not put to bed, but wasn't the kind of issue it was in 2019. I'm not suggesting that Labour doesn't say what it believes on some of these really important questions around culture. But what I am suggesting is that it is this economic change that I think is the best alliance that we can build of older and younger voters. And votes for 16 I, it doesn't solve the problem of the kind of age of the electorate issue or the issue of the age around of the electorate that you've raised. But I'm not, well, I mean, maybe votes for 60-year-old I think is going a bit, a bit far for me. I also suspect that if all children were enfranchised, the Conservative Party would, as it's shown in its history, when other great enfranchisements happened, would find a good way to adjust their message to the new electorate. I don't think we know how Conservative six-year-olds are yet. We need to poll them. Indeed, that well, that is a that is an interesting um, that is an interesting yeah. point. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know if that's the wrong point on which to end. No, we don't want to end on we don't want to end on that. Okay, I'm going to ask you. I'll ask you one more question. I'll ask you a sort of desert island disc question. So let me ask you a desert island disc question. Oh, go on, go on. If you can make wave your magic wand and make one of the big ideas in this book come true tomorrow, without opposition, which one would it be? You know, I think it probably would be universal basic income, actually, <laughs> which in a way I'm. Of all the ideas in the book, I'm the most sceptical that it can happen quickly. That's why you need the magic wand. <laughs> but that's why I need the magic wand. Because this idea, I mean, I talk about Alaska in the book because they have this thing called the Permanent Dividend Fund in Alaska, which is basically their oil fund. And, and they give out checks of a couple of thousand dollars a year to every citizen of Alaska. And it is wildly popular in a very conservative, bracket Sarah Palin, state. And... Uh, why is this UBI taken off? Because I think it speaks to so many issues. I think it speaks to the insecurity. And I think, you know, risk, I think the word risk is something we don't talk about enough in our society. I think this transference of risk from the state and business to the individual compared to the post-war social contract, I think is one of the biggest drivers of people's deep sense of insecurity in our society. So it tackles issues of risk. It tackles issues of freedom and giving people freedom to decide how they live their own lives. It empowers workers to say no to employers. It rebalances power in the, in the workplace. And I think it, it's about what the left of politics should be about, which is people being authors of their own life story and being able to do great and different in different things. So, but I think it's incredibly expensive. It's incredibly hard to deliver. It's incredibly hard to see how you would get sort of public support for it. So there's all kinds of obstacles in the way. So given that you're giving me the magic wand, I'll, I'll take it. But just on that point of risk, this is a very last thing, but it does go back to what you said about the, the bravery of politicians. And in a world where ordinary citizens are having to be brave because of the risks that they're facing, there is a premium on political courage. And I have to say, I do think one of Boris Johnson's attributes as a politician is that he is risky. Yeah. A wise person said to me when I was leader, look, often the biggest risk is not taking risks. <laughs> In other words, being too cautious. You know, when I look back on my time as leader, I felt I was too cautious. I wasn't cautious. It's so paradoxical because I wasn't cautious in my analysis of the state of the country. And in fact, lots of people, you know, Red Ed and all that, people thought, you know, I was saying companies could be predatory, inequality was a massive problem. 
you know, we should intervene in markets, energy prices and all that. And that was seen as very sort of way out there. Now it's sort of mainstream and government policy, indeed. It was living in a Marxist universe and now it's the government's policy. But I wasn't risky enough when it came to solutions. And you have to learn from politics. I think politicians aren't very good at learning. But 2017 was a very instructive experience for me because I think it's the election that most people who engage in political analysis find hardest to explain. And no doubt it was partly because of Theresa May and some of her problems, but with a more turbocharged manifesto of 2015, and by painting in primary colours, I do think Corbyn sort of engaged people and excited people and gave people a sense of a vision. And I think for, for Labour and for progressive politics, I do think you are right on this. You know, it goes back to what you said earlier. Conservatism is adapting to new circumstances. This is not the 1980s in the sense that they aren't fighting on traditional right-wing ground. And I think the best answer for progressives, I personally don't think they will address the deep inequalities and problems that they are now acknowledging, but the best answer for progressives is to show that we can and tell a, a big and compelling story about what a different society looks like. You can get Ed's book wherever you get your books. But as you know, we like to encourage you to get them from real bookstores. So please do if you can. It's called Go Big, How to Fix Our World. Helen and I are going to be answering your questions over the next few weeks. And we would love to get more. Plenty have come in. The more, the better. And the sooner, the better. So it gives us a chance to think about how we might answer them. Because some of the questions are hard. You can contact us through Twitter at tppodcast underscore on Facebook or just go to our website, talkingpoliticspodcast.com. It's very easy to leave a question there. We're looking forward to answering them. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.